today's reading is 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and is on page 368 in the Pew Bibles. So, 2 Kings chapter 1, 1 to 18. The Lord's judgment on Ahaziah. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers, saying to them, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angels of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on you will certainly die. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt round his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there's no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? This is the word of the Lord. Right, well, this evening in our little look in uh, 1 and 2 Kings, we come to uh, 2 Kings chapter 1 and the reign of King uh, Ahaziah. So we're looking at the reign of one king who lasted barely one year. 
you might not think it sounds too promising. Well, his father, Ahab, he had um, been killed, uh, as uh, Elijah the prophet predicted. He'd been killed in battle. He has an ignominious uh, end, and he's signed off by the compiler of the book of Kings in his usual style. So the king died. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and adorned with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? And Ahab rested with his ancestors, and Ahaz, Ayah, his son, succeeded him as kings. Now, we don't have access to the annals of the kings of Israel, but obviously the compiler did. So, on the death of his father, uh, Ahaziah becomes uh, king. And uh, we read in 1 Kings 22 that uh, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the ways of his father and mother and of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. So his son Ahaziah accedes to the throne and is introduced again in this very stylistic way. It's the formula that the compiler of kings tops and tails every, uh, every the beginning and the end of every reign of the 20-odd kings who, uh, who reigned on Israel and Judah. And he's basically letting us know in advance, it's a bit of a spoiler, he tells us whether they're going to turn out to be a goodie or a baddie. Now Israel, the northern kingdom, had 19 kings. 18 are assessed as being bad. One is at best a mixture. Of the 20 kings of the southern king of Judah, well, they were a bit better. 12 are bad, 4 are mixed, and 4, surprisingly, are good. But God's plans, you remember, have to work out. So there's got to be at least one or two good guys who progress the plans of God into reality. So after Ahab's death, we read verse 1, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now it's quite important to get our bearings. So let's have a look at this. We're focusing on the blue kingdom the kingdom of Israel. About 100 years before this period, this period is around 850, uh, about 100 years before, the kingdom had been split. Ten tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel, which had its capital at Samaria, which in New Testament times is called Sebaste, and today is a ruin outside of Nablus on the West Bank. And then there's Judah in the south, which was formed of two tribes, and was centred on Jerusalem, and is clouded that rather sort of dusky pink. Or, if you like the colour, it's Dulux colour chart 3031. <laughs> now, we will have, that's true, we, will call, we have cause to mention the Philistines, who are the red lot up here, and you may know that the word Philistine is the origin of the word Palestine. Now, these people occupied five cities, three of which are still in existence today, Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. Ashdod is a major Israeli port. And then up in the very sort of top end, you've got, um, 
You've got the kingdom of Aram centered on Damascus when those Aramean tribes moved in from the desert to uh, settle in rather more uh, fertile areas. Just below that, you have the kingdom of Ammon. It's centered on Rabbath Ammon, which is present-day Amman, the capital of Jordan. And then just below that, on the sort of southeastern part of the Dead Sea, you have Moab. They are a particularly nasty bunch. I mean, they really are. They went in for child sacrifice, would you believe? And Mesha, one of their kings, a Moabite, uh, we'll mention in a minute, and he did just that to his own children. And finally there, right down in the south, in really how anything grows there, I don't know. I've been both sides of the, the border, and it is really, really like the moon. Not that I've been there, but, uh, but it is just, you know, it's just dirt. So that's Edom, and um, you can see there Petromart, and obviously some of the later period, the Nabatu tribes, who are the Nabataeans, they formed the, they formed the, uh, the kingdom uh, that it was centered on Petra later on. So we have real places, and we also have real people. Now, you won't be able to read this. I just put this up for one particular purpose. The lot on the right were kings of Israel, sorry, were kings of Judah, and the lot on the left are kings of Israel. But these are the ones we're focusing upon that are in this little box here. Uh, you've got four generations. You've got Omri, then his son is Ahab. He married the notorious Jezebel. And then you've got Ahaziah and his brother. His brother succeeded him. And then you've got Jehu. These are the ones. And the reason why I've, we flagged them up is not only because it's actually in the passage in the, 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 these books, but they're actually mentioned, some of them, elsewhere. So here, for example, are where they get mentioned. You have Omri, who was king for about a decade, and he's referred to in something called the Moabite Stone. Then there's Ahab, and he ruled for, what, 20 years, and then his son Ahaziah for a year. Then you've got Joram or Jeroam. The reason why there's an alternative is because they don't have many names, and the lot in the south called their king Jehoram. It gets confusing, so he obviously had an alternative. And then you've got Jehu, who was a famous charioteer. He, um, he's mentioned in this steel of uh, Shalmaneser III, the black obelisk of Shalmaneser. Right, here they are. This is just to show you that had they had CNN or BBC World News, this lot would have featured in it. You know, this is real places, real people, big international kind of news. So there is this thing called the Moabite Stone, which uh, really refers to the beginning part of this period that we're looking at. And then the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III, who was the king of Assyria, which is kind of the area of northern Iraq today. But they were the big news at the time. They were the most powerful nation, more so than the Egyptians even. And you can see in this little uh, relief here, there, you can see either Jehu himself or his ambassador. There's his behind, if you can't quite see. And there's his little skull cap thing. And this is a typical Assyrian. Now, I mean, if you've seen um, 
Have you seen Indiana Jones, you know, and whatever the first one was? Lots of Nazis in that. The Germans were really into archaeology. And I'm sure, you know, Adolf and his nasty brigade, the Assyrians were particularly cruel as well. They must have pinched some of the kind of, uh, you know, sort of imagery off of the Assyrians to incorporate in their sort of Nuremberg rallies and things. That's definitely, I'm sure, nicked off of them. Anyway, so the Moabite stone. That was found by a German missionary in 1868, just east of uh, the Dead Sea. And it's about four foot high. And this missionary went back to Germany to get the $400 to pay the Arabs for it. Meanwhile, a Frenchman called Clément Jeannot went to see it, and he made what they called then squeezes. They're a bit like brass rubbing, so that you, you have a copy of, uh, of this inscription, which was just as well, because somehow or other the Arabs managed through, I don't know what they were playing at, but anyway, they ended up breaking it into pieces. And uh, fortunately, the, the French guy was able, because he got a copy, to find all the bits and stick them back together again. And it's now in the Louvre. So if you ever fancy a romantic weekend in Paris, you know, if you want to do something in the daytime, go to the Louvre and have a look. Well, the Moabite stone's particularly significant because um, it's from the same period, about 850 BC. In it, Omri is confirmed as being a king of Israel and that Moab had been a state subjugated to Omri. It tells us of Mesha's revolt first against Ahab and then a revolt which continued when Ahaziah became king, showing that they were contemporaries of each other. And uh, 2 Kings 3 tells us how, it, how Israel overpowered the Moabites. And what's really significant is this is the first mention outside of the Bible of the name of King David and the name, the personal name, of the God of Israel, Yahweh. So it's quite significant. And then there's this uh, black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. You don't have to go to Paris to see that. You can go and see it for nothing in the British Museum. It's about six and a half feet tall. It comes from uh, basically Nimrod, which is Babylon, which is on sort of to the west of Baghdad today. And Shalmaneser III was the king of Assyria. And it tells of his victories. Uh, in this period, it mentions Jehu as being king of Israel and of Jehu bowing down, or his ambassador, one or the other, bowing down as we saw before him. And it mentions also that Shalmaneser went into battle against the coalition of kings from Damascus, Israel, and Judah. And he mentions, as I say, yes, Jehu as well. Now, the reason why... I'm um, taking up your time telling you about this is because I want to emphasize that these are real places, real people, and real events. Events which, if they had better means of recording them, uh, we would know far more about than we actually do. But it does show you that there is some corroboration on a few things with other ancient... Um, resources that corroborate what the Bible is saying. But the important thing is to look at the text and to see what we can learn from it. This is a time of testing for Ahaziah. 
and will he make the right call or not? Well, let's just recap so that we know the context. God has made a deal, a covenant, 2000 BC with Abraham. And the promise of that covenant was that through Abraham's descendants, they would occupy a land and through them, a savior of the world would come. And that ultimate outcome was not just for the benefit of one ethnic group, the Jews. It was for ultimately for the benefit of people of all nations. All ethnic groups could be brought into a relationship with the one true God, not just the one particular group, through whom God worked it all out. Now, while, of course, God kept his promise, he kept faith with his promises, we have seen in previous weeks how many of the, the kings did not. So we don't have to guess how, Isaiah, how, how Azaziah will do. We've already read the spoiler. We've read how he did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed in the way of his father and his mother. Now, although we know what the evaluation of him is going to be, we can learn from his test and the mistakes that he made. So we read verse 2. Now, Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. Now, this is a picture, not, of course, from the ancient world. I couldn't find anything like that. This is from somewhere in Dubai, apparently. It's a courtyard, but you can see that above the courtyard on the first floor, imagine sort of where our clear story is, that you have, instead of glass, you have this kind of um, interlocking, thin, lattice wood. It's quite easy to imagine how, particularly if you had a bit too much of the local vino, that you lean against the wooden balustrade and you fall straight through onto the courtyard below and you do yourself no good. J.C. Ryle was once a vicar of the parish where I was a curate, about 120 years before I was, and he made this observation. If through our trials we are brought to Jesus, and if through them we are kept close to him, our disadvantage is turned to our advantage. Unfortunately, Ahaziah didn't get that. Instead of turning to the Lord, this is what he did. Verse 2. He sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. He wanted to know what the future was going to be. Instead of listening to the Lord, he sought alternative gods. Now, Ekron... Oh, yeah, Ekron is there. So you have one, two, three, four, five. They are the five cities of the Philistines. And you can, uh, and the Philistines were known to the Egyptians. Uh, you can see them on re Egyptian hieroglyphics and you can, in, on their reliefs in their various temples. And they were known as the Sea People because surprise, surprise, they come from the islands of the Eastern Mediterranean. So you can see that, and I'll just show you how come. Now, if you're into pottery, the pot 
on the right is a Philistine pot from about 900 BC. The one on the left is a Hellenic, a Greek pot from about 1300 BC, from either Crete or Cyprus. And you, there is loads of this stuff all over the place. And it's dead obvious that they're the same people. The things are almost exactly the same when you start examining them. And these, uh, these Philistines, they had their god, Baal-zebub, which means the lord of the flies. Now that may well be a corruption of Baal-zebul. Baal is exalted, as in the New Testament, where Baal-zebul is an alias for the devil himself. Now Ahaziah wants to know the outcome of his time of trial before from a malevolent source rather than a benevolent one. Now that was a bad call. That was a really bad choice. So the Lord God, Yahweh, as he's called, that's his personal name, brings his prime asset into play. His asset is Elijah the Chishbite. So... Uh, So Elijah, so um, we have the first account of Elijah with Ahaziah's messengers who are en route from uh, Samaria to Ekron, which is about 50 miles. But we read in verse 3, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. We don't have an account of him telling the messengers this same message, but that would have been the second time it was mentioned. But we do have those messengers reporting back. You know, Elijah was successful in stopping them going to Ekron and making them go back to the king with his message that he got from the Lord himself. Now when the messengers, verse 5, returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied. He said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair, or if you look at the footnote, he was a hairy man and had a leather belt round his waist. And the king immediately knew who that was. It was Elijah, the Tishbite. So that's three times the Lord's question has been put and three times God's judgment on Ahaziah has been given. Then we have Ahaziah's reaction. This is where he had an opportunity. He could have turned and repented. And as with his father, the Lord may have had mercy on him for a time. But he chose rather to try and eliminate God's messenger. So he sends, verse 9, a captain with 50 men off. And uh, the captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. 
Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Second captain comes along, who's sent, uh, the king sends another one. And this time the captain says, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. He's more insistent. And then we have Elijah saying the same thing, and the 50 are struck dead by fire. And then the third captain is sent with his 50 men. But he went up, and he fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men but now have respect for my life. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says, it's because there's no God in Israel, is it because there is uh, no God in Israel that you consult uh, the king, the God of Ekron? but because you've done this, you will never leave your bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. In other words, he didn't, take, he didn't see things the way that third captain had. You know, he should have done, but he was too proud, and he paid for it. So in case we don't get it, that's the fourth time the question has been put and the fourth time judgment has been given. And then there is this rather tragic, stylized formula. Because as Isaiah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? So what's the takeaway from this episode that a whole chapter of the Bible is given to it? There is one event in one year where the guy makes one decision and it's the wrong one. Well, I think there are four things that we can at least take from this. First of all, God, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel and of the world, is an exclusive God. He has no rivals, verses 1 to 8. He sentences King Ahaziah to death for preferring to consult Baal rather than him. Let me introduce you to um, Scandinavian smorgasbord. Literally a Swedish word meaning bread and butter on a table. But now in international haute cuisine, uh, it has expanded way beyond that meaning so that you are presented with a veritable feast to pick and choose from. You can sample any of it you like. But God does not present before us an array of religious delicacies to choose from. Exodus 20, verse 3, the very first commandment. God says, there are no other gods. There's only him. He's the real one. The rest are, in fact, human inventions to fill the God-shaped vacuum of human beings. 
Now, there is a kind of kindness and severity that is displayed here. God is, on the one hand, quite severe. Verse 4, Ahaziah is seriously injured. He's bedridden. But he's making the wrong decision. He should inquire, not of the false god, a malign influence, one that's been humanly created, a bogus alternative, Baal. The fact that he appeals to Baal implies that he thinks that there is no God in Israel, or that if there is, he's either non-existent or ineffectual. And that is the essence of idolatry, to think that there is a God, but that he's insufficient, he's inadequate, or even he's non-existent. You can just shut him out. You don't have to kind of call him into the frame. And so we buy a God of our own creation, but it'll be one that won't be able to deliver. So God acts severely to head off this godless expedition of the kings. But he's also merciful. God is being very kind by sending... Um, Elijah to intercept his envoys in Ekron and this would have been Ahaziah's last chance but he doesn't realize it you think he would being on his deathbed and God invades his space and his time and he rubs his nose in the first commandment He's not prepared to let Ahaziah just wander effortlessly towards an idol so terrible that a few years later the king of Judah would become so warped in his thinking that he joined with the Moabites in burning alive his son as a sacrifice to the Moabite god. God wants to stop that sort of thing before people degenerate into such awfulness. That's why he did it. Secondly, we see how God defends his prophet Elijah in verses 9 to 12. This is um, the kind of passage that gets kind of Western intelligentsia really up in arms about the God of the Bible because 102 soldiers get instantly cremated and they will say this is morally pointless and this is inhuman. And being brought up in the same culture, we of course do feel the strength, the force of that accusation. There's no doubt that God is responsible for this action of turning to toast the first captain and his 50 and then repeating it again with the second captain and his 50. However, Ahaziah has not sent these troops as a guard of honour to escort Elijah back to the king for a royal banquet. No, they'd come to arrest Elijah and doubtless to silence him permanently and that's, in verse 15, we uh, see God's warning to Elijah, do not be afraid. And that little statement implies that he had good cause to, because they meant him harm. But why the fire, verses 10 and 12? Well, the background to this is um, 1 Kings 18, um, where there was this very public contest between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the god of the nations around them. The god who answered by fire, Elijah's god, was the real god. They had this competition, which one could call down fire from heaven. And as frenetic as the followers of Baal were, nothing happened. 
Elijah just prays a prayer and it comes. That was proof that Yahweh was God and not Baal. That was God being vindicated. Now King Hosiah would have known about that spectacular event and yet he backs the loser. So God sent more fire with the same purpose to demonstrate his all-powerful existence. And though 102 soldiers lost their lives, it was because of Ahaziah's rebellious folly, which flew in the face of the existing evidence. The first commandment, no other God really matters to the one true God, and he vindicates himself publicly. But fire also protects Elijah, God's spokesman. God doesn't always do this, but he does it at times, particularly when he wants to endorse or authorise what his prophets are saying. He did it with Moses, you might recall, in the Exodus. Moses said things, and to get Pharaoh to register, this is from God, this is going to happen, certain miracles took place. And so here we have another one. God is saying, Elijah is speaking from me. That's why he does it. And thirdly, God here does exalt the humble who display the right response to him in verses 13 to 15. The first two captains displayed an arrogance towards God's servant, the prophet. Come, orders the first one. Come quickly, orders the second one. And both are incinerated. I guess the third captain was none too pleased given this assignment. However, the thought of it leads him to the right response towards the God of the prophet. But we might ask, is the use of such terror morally right? Well, it does if it is the reality of the situation. I mean, true terror leads to his salvation, not to his incineration. One of the commentators on this part of the Bible, a chap called Ralph Davis, uh, includes an episode from the 18th century from Haworth in Yorkshire to illustrate true terror. The vicar, William Grimshaw, had invited uh, George Whitfield, who, who, who was one time the curate of Dummer, which is just across the motorway from us, Anyway, he invited uh, Whitfield to preach. And Grimshaw had had an elevated pulpit constructed outside the south wall of his parish church so that the number of hearers would not be restricted to the capacity of the church building. Whitfield stood there as he addressed the enormous gathering. And this is an eyewitness account. After prayer he solemnly announced his text. It was Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. He paused and was about to proceed when he was interrupted by a wild, curdling shriek from the middle of the congregation. The Reverend Grimshaw hurried to investigate and after some minutes returned to tell Whitfield that an immortal soul has been called to eternity. This news was announced to the people. After a few moments, Whitfield again announced his text. It is appointed unto men once to die, 
Another piercing shriek rose in another part of the crowd. Those assembled were horror-struck when they heard a second person had fallen dead. After the turmoil had subsided somewhat, Mr. Whitfield indicated his intention of proceeding with the service. He did so, announcing his text again to an assembly as still as death. Now, do you reckon they listened to Whitfield attentively as he started to explain that text again? Well, of course they did. And why did they do so? Fear. Indeed, terror. It was unnerving, but it wasn't unhealthy. Not if it humbled them to hear. How does the opening verse of uh, John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, written actually in the days of Whitfield and Grimshaw, start? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom is knowing the right way to live. See, that's what started Newton, the slave trader. That's what set him off on a road which eventually led to his salvation. And finally, we see that God does deliver on his threats, verses 16 to 18. Elijah announces the same message from the angel of the Lord to Ahaziah, which the king had previously heard back in verse 3 and verse 6 and had rejected. And Elijah's last words to him were, because you've done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. And so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. It sounds also matter of fact to say that, but what do you expect? If Yahweh speaks, it happens. What God says, he does. He delivers on his threats. So Ahaziah died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. But the good news is, is that the word of the Lord cuts both ways. If God delivers on his threats, God will deliver on his promises too. His assurances are as reliable as his judgments. Jesus said, John 6, 37, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Or John 14, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Ahaziah experienced one side of the certainty of God's word, but that sure word can shield as well as shatter, support as well as smash. And once again, this rather sad obituary. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And as for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign, see, not significant enough to bother to record in the Bible. And what he did, 
Are they not written in the annals of the books of the kings of Israel? A standard epitaph. So at a time of supreme need, he had not sought the real God. And that's all we really know about him. What a sad and sorry short of rain. But this chapter isn't so much about the short reign of Ahaziah. It's much more about the one he should have recognized as the one true God, the God of Israel, the God they knew as Yahweh. Let's pray. When we reflect on a passage like this, uh, which is rather strange, about the short life of one king, we can be tempted to think it might be a legend made up. We can think it deals with a primitive stage in the development of a religion. We can claim that it's morally offensive. Or we can face the God of whom it speaks and follow him. We pray, O Lord, that unlike Ahaziah, we might make the right call. Amen.